Welcome back to Behind the Crime. I'm Ella Calora. I'm Rebecca Wood. And we're your hosts. Now, we have to clear a little bit of an issue up. In the episode, you're going to hear us refer to this as our June episode. We it's had, not June anymore. Yeah, it's, you know, October maybe. Um, we had a plan to release one episode per month in the summer, but it just went... We, we do too it much. We both happen. We were both <laughs> working the, so much. It just didn't yeah, happen. It did not happen. So we're using the episodes. We're still going to use the episodes we recorded. So you'll hear us a lot in this episode refer to it as the June episode. But just ignore that. Yeah. And we might like say coming up in July or like talk about other episodes yeah. for the summer. It's not the summer. So don't it's worry. fall. <laughs> it's fall, y'all. <laughs> that made me want to leave. I shouldn't have Why said that. Why did you say that? Because. All right, let's get into it. Yep. <laughs> I'm Ella Calora. And I'm Rebecca Wood, and today we have a special guest with us. Hi, I'm Sarah Rados. Tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> I'm a sophomore here at Susquehanna. I study a lot of things, too. I'm a double major in anthropology and Spanish and double minor in philosophy and applied linguistics. I'm also a student athlete. I play for the women's golf team. I'm a DJ on WQSU. And whenever I have time, I go to clubs, which isn't a lot, but I try to make it out when I can. You're there in spirit. Yeah. yeah. And today she made it here. I did. She did. So this episode, our theme that we picked is arson. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're going first this week. I am. We're going a little bit of a ways back, just to 1990, so it's not super long ago, but it's not very recent. Mine happened in the same year. Oh. Well, oh. a lot, like around the same year. How interesting. <laughs> she copied me. <laughs> okay, so my arson attack is the case of Julio Gonzalez, who is a Cuban immigrant. I'm just going to start with a background about him so we kind of get to know him before we get into what he did. He was born on October 10th in 1954 in Olguin, Cuba. I looked up how to pronounce it, and that's how, what it said, so I'm just going off no, that. you're right. Okay, cool. Yeah, as a Spanish major, that's good. I was going to say, we have Sarah here <laughs> to fact check right. us. <laughs> Thank you. He served three years in a Cuban prison for deserting the army, the Cuban army, um, and that's really the only criminal background that he has, which is, I don't know, I feel like pretty unique mm -hmm. for an arsonist. Mm -hmm. So in 1980, when he was 25, he joined the Mariel Boatlift, which was an effort by Cuban-Americans and agreed to by the Cuban government, and it brought thousands of asylum-seeking Cubans to the U.S. It was later found out, apparently, that many of the refugees that came through this effort were all re recently released from jails and mental hospitals. So I guess this was a bit of a to get people who wouldn't normally be accepted because they were in prison or in mental hospitals. He reportedly faked having a record as a drug dealer in order to use this effort to come to the U.S. because he did not have, he was not a drug dealer and his only time in prison was for deserting the army. So he had to make himself more of a criminal I was gonna than say, he actually was to yeah. come here? That's so interesting. It is. I was reading that and I was like, oh, <laughs> weird. But he first arrived in Florida and then eventually settled in New York. He traveled to a couple of different states, but then he was sponsored by the American Council for Nationalities in Manhattan. 
and they basically linked immigrants with relatives. So he must have had some relatives in New York, but nothing has really been published about that. We don't know who his relatives were that they linked him with, but they were in New York. So a little bit before the incident, he worked in a lamp factory. And the week within the week that this happened, he had lost his job. So obviously he was... So that's a trigger. Yeah, he was going through it a little bit. And then some basic facts before I get into how exactly everything went down. It happened at the Happy Land nightclub in the Bronx. It was on the second floor of a apparently run-down building. It was owned... The building was owned partially by Jay Weiss, who's husband of the actress Kathleen Turner. The name sounds familiar, but I can't really pick out anything that she was in. Kathleen Turner. The name is very familiar. I'll have to look that up later. Anyways, the date that this happened was March 25th, 1990, and most of the patrons who were at the club that night were Honduran immigrants because they were there celebrating Carnival. Okay, Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's one of the deadliest arson cases of all time. The death toll was 87. My gosh. 93 people were in the club, so only six people managed to make it out. Wow. Or not three, I'm sorry. Only six people managed to make it out. I know you're probably going to say this later, but is there a reason why people couldn't make it out? Yes. I'm I'm going to get into that a little bit right now, actually. The club was supposed to, it was ordered to close by the fire department in 1988. Oh. For hmm. building code violations and fire code violations. But the department never followed up. So obviously, two years later, they're still open. And apparently the owners, so Jay Weiss and the other two owners who they had been leasing it from, were trying to evict them and get them out of the building, but for whatever reason, it wasn't working. So a little bit of how this started. He, I'm not sure if this was the day he lost his job or the day after, sometime during the week of it, though. He went to the Happy Land nightclub and got in an argument with his girlfriend, Lydia Feliciano. They were dating for six years, but they were on and off Mm -hmm. the entire time. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's unclear whether they were off or on at this time, but they were definitely, if they were still together, they were working towards not being at the moment. It was a very heated argument, and it was about the fact that she had quit her job as a coat checker at the Happy Land nightclub. And he apparently was screaming threats. This is when the bouncer came in because obviously he was threatening a woman and he was drunk. So this all took place at the nightclub? Yes, the night of the the fire. Okay. So around 3 a.m. he was kicked out by the bouncer and that upset him. And once again, he was intoxicated, like very severely Mm -hmm. intoxicated, probably drinking away his stress about losing his job and then his girlfriend for some reason quitting her job so now they're both unemployed which is obviously not great so he walked three miles away to a gas station and there was a the clerk there the gas station attendant was one of his friends somebody he knew and he bought a dollar worth of gas then walked back to the club so like i said the club was on the second floor of the building he splashed the gasoline at the foot of the staircase which was also the only open exit and then lit the fire and immediately left and went to sleep at home oh my gosh so obviously the building you know caught the flames pretty quickly because gasoline and 
nobody really noticed it because obviously most people there were drunk yeah um, which makes the whole situation worse yeah <laughs> and what's really awful is that the club had no fire escapes or alarm systems or sprinklers which is why they had been ordered to close they did technically have the fire escapes but they blocked them with metal gates so people couldn't enter without paying the cover charge because that's more important than people's safety Oh my gosh. By the time firefighters arrived, most of the patrons were dead already. A quote from one of the firefighters was, bodies were piled in the stairwell and on the second floor. Most of the club goers had suffocated from the smoke or had been trampled trying to escape because they're all running towards the only exit. Lydia, his girlfriend, was one of only six survivors She was actually the first one out, and she told the police about the altercation she had previously, and then the police immediately went to his house and woke him up, and he confessed, saying, I got angry, the devil got to me, and I set the fire. So a lot of people fault not only him, because he is ultimately the one who set the fire Mm -hmm. and did it at that specific spot, knowing nobody could escape. The owners of the club have been faulted because they blocked fire escapes and had no sprinklers and alarm systems. And the local government came under a lot of criticism because they were not enforcing the fire and building codes. Like, they had been told to shut down, but then never followed up. And I'm sure they knew that they were still open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a it was a pretty popular nightclub. It, I was going to say, there were a lot of people there. So it's not mm-hmm. like it was yeah. a little, a small little club where only, like, a few people went on a couple nights. Like yeah. there were ninety three people. You said ninety three. Yeah, in the club, and they were you know they were celebrating, you know, a pretty big holiday mm-hmm. occasion. But yeah, so they came under a lot of criticism for that, and the other person who came under criticism was actually his girlfriend Lydia because she was the first one to escape. The reason that she was the first one to escape was because she was the first one to see the flames. And then left. But she didn't say anything. Didn't tell anyone. Mm. She, in court, testified that she tried to tell people, but nobody listened to her. But I... She still could have... Who called the fire department? Nothing said. Because she... It probably wasn't even people in the club. It was probably neighbors yeah. and people live. Because she could have nearby. at least called the fire department if people yeah. weren't listening she to it. She tore down the gate on one of the exits, and that's how the other five people also escaped. So she, it's just weird to me that she happened to be the first person to yeah. see it. Mm-hmm. See, I was when you mentioned the altercation between them, I, I immediately wanted to ask if she made it out or not. But nope, she did. One of very, very, very few. Mm-hmm. It's kind of good that she made it out, though, because they might not have found out who set the fire yeah. for yeah, a while she or at them. all. Yeah, because I, I don't know who the other five people who made it out were. I don't know if they were the bouncer or the DJ who Gonzalez had actually also assaulted that night. Mm-hmm. I don't know who the other yeah, survivors were. So you're right. They might not have been able to figure out Im- as quickly who it was. Because at that point, he was at home in bed. But I'm sure mm-hmm. they could have found out because he went to the gas station and he was, you know, drunk. They probably could have traced I'm it I'm sure they would have. But, but it would have taken longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have a quote from Turner, the wife of the owner, the actress. And she said, the fire was unfortunate but could have happened at a McDonald's. And 
The thing is, I don't blame her for it because it's not her fault, but her husband, Weiss, why why did it take so why was it so hard for them to evict them? Like I don't understand what the issue was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like they couldn't simply have been squatting because they were also still actively letting people in and making money out of it. So I don't understand what happened. They Weiss and the two other owners were brought to trial as well, but they were found not criminally responsible because they had tried to close the club and evict evicted the tenant, but the tenant just didn't leave. How hard did you try? Right? Yeah. Like I'm just don't understand how Two years after getting shut down, the government, local government did nothing to get them out, and the owners did nothing to get it out. Like, they couldn't even post things saying, don't go to this nightclub. Even if you can't close them, you couldn't, you know, send out memos in the mail saying, this is a super dangerous place. You shouldn't be Mm -hmm. going here. Because I doubt all those people that were there knew. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, because you... You go out to a nightclub, that's not what you're thinking about. No. You're not thinking like, oh, if I need to get out of this place quickly, do they have fire escapes? Is there a back door? That's yeah. not what you're thinking I mean, about. very, very limited people are thinking like that, you mm-hmm. know? So I'm going to get into the trial. I didn't mention this before, but at the time of the crime, Gonzalez was 37, and he pleaded not guilty, of believe it or not, <laughs> which I don't understand how, but they basically... Uh, declared that he was fit for trial after examining him and that he was sane. He was not insane, so there was no reason that he could plead not guilty by reason of insanity because he was sane. Mm -hmm. Here's a quote from an article I read that says, Relatives and friends of the victims had packed the courtroom in the state Supreme Court in the Bronx to hear the sentence. Many carried snapshots of their dead family members, though some said they were relieved that the long, painful criminal proceedings were over. Many others said they wished for an even harsher sentence, Mm -hmm. meaning the death penalty. One specific woman was Maria Colon and her two kids. Her husband, Ramon, died, and she sat through the entire trial with a bouquet of violets and roses. And she said, it wasn't enough. I wanted the death sentence. I wanted him to be there with the 87 people who died. Whoa. I felt like that last sentence was just very, very... Yeah. Like, I got goosebumps when I first read it. Yeah, that's heavy. Yeah. Justice Roberts is the judge who presided, and he sentenced Gonzalez on September 21st, 1991. He was tried for 87 counts of arson, 87 counts of second-degree murder, 87 counts of felony murder, and one count of assault on the club's DJ. He was found guilty for all of them, every single charge. He received 87 prison terms and the maximum sentence that was allowed for each each count. So it was also the longest sentence that's ever been given in New York State. Oh, interesting. Still to this day. He oh, was sent- still to this day. Still, it's the long. I mean, when you hear how long his sentence is. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> he was sentenced to 174 25-year-to-life sentences, which is a total of 4,350 years. Wow. Which, obviously, he's not actually going to, you know, spend that long there. And he didn't. He actually died in 2016 at age 61. Mm. He had a heart attack. I was going to say, that's kind of young. Why did he die? Yeah. I don't know. He just had a heart attack. There's a little bit, a lot of interesting stuff that happened in the aftermath. The first two things I'm going to say are actually very, very upsetting. 90 children became orphans because of the fire. 
90-ish. Five of the victims were high school students. And the site, obviously, since then, it burned down basically completely. And it's been renamed the Plaza of the 87. And three different artists commemorated the event through music. So the song Sin of the City by Duran Duran is about this fire. Happy Land by Joe Jackson is also about the fire. You, Me, Him, and Hurt by Jay-Z is also about this fire. Those are all like three popular artists. I was going to say, I recognized all three of them. I know. I I thought that was very, very weird when I was reading that. I was like, oh, interesting. So in 2015, he applied for parole because that was the first time he was eligible. But the board said, quote, that he would not live at liberty without again violating the law and that releasing him would be incompatible with the welfare of society. Thank God. Mm-hmm. Like, if they let him out when he's supposed to technically, you know, supposed to be serving over 4,000 years, yeah. yeah, he would have been eligible again for parole in November of 2016, but he died on September 13th of 2016. He died in Clinton Correctional Facility in Dannemora, which is upstate New York. It's a very, very heavy, heavy yeah, case, yeah. but that's pretty much. Did he ever like express like regret or remorse for it, or? Well, he pled not guilty. Yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna. Assume, I mean, I though. think his confession was kind of a cop out. I let the devil get to me. Yeah. That's saying the devil did it. No, yeah. you did it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think he pretty much was just trying to cop out of it and then was like he was like i'm not guilty it was an accident i don't know Mm. but it was clearly so intentional you walked six miles total i was gonna Mm -hmm. say at past three in the morning Uh and then put it at the bottom of the staircase which was the only exit and his girlfriend worked there so it's pretty likely that he knew that it was the only Mm -hmm. exit you know i mean he had all that time to think about what he was mm-hmm. doing he had so much time and the to fact stop. that he was so intoxicated but had such like logical not logical I was gonna but say because to put it at the calculated end of the stairs word. like at the bottom of the stairs mm-hmm. he could have he could have put it, it anywhere you'd think that somebody who's that drunk like he was very 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 inebriated you'd think somebody that drunk would just pour it like outside the front of the building and then well, leave. yeah but no he it was very very calculated which kind of makes me think it was more premeditated than yeah. admitted mm-hmm. to be. Yeah. But yeah, that's pretty much wraps it up. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I can't get over the ninety like orphan children. Yeah. I like was that gave say, me goosebumps. That that's so I know. sad. I wasn't even thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And I believe it was sixty parents lost their children. Like parents who were still living. Mm-hmm. Oh. So that's also yeah, and then the high school students, that's just really sad because they were just so, so young. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, mine is not better. So. Sarah regrets joining. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll just leave. <laughs> the 90 orphans got me. Because sometimes yeah. you only think about, like, the actual. They lost their like, lives. Like, the victims. Yeah. Like, the people who lost their lives. But then you have to remember that they also had families yeah. mm-hmm. and they're also victims there because were, those 90 mm-hmm. kids don't have parents anymore. Yeah, so there were 87 direct victims, but hundreds of indirect mm-hmm. victims. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so 
Mine is the case of John Leonard Orr. This case is also known as the Pillow Pyro. I'll get into that, why it's named that later. I don't like that. (laughs) It's actually not what you think. Well, it's not what I was thinking when I first heard that. Interesting. Did he, like, use pillows to fuel the flame? Well, kind of. Okay, get into it. it. I have to stop guessing. Okay, so... Orr was born on April 26, 1949, in Los Angeles, California. He was one of three boys. His parents did divorce when he was young, um, and then after high school, he joined the Air Force. He. Oh, they both had a military background. Mm-hmm. Interesting. He was stationed in Spain for a while, and he married his high school girlfriend at the time. Then, shortly after, he moved to Montana. And then, in April of 1971, he was honorably discharged from the Air Force. I couldn't find out exactly why mm-hmm. he was. I I have a couple suspicions, but I'll get into that in a minute. Mm-hmm. So then, he returned to L.A. and applied to two police departments and two fire departments. During this time, he divorced his wife after he had two daughters with her. So he actually was able to test for the LAPD, and he passed all the tests except for the mental examination that they did on him. He did not pass. So that's the first red flag. Mm -hmm. So then... I'll keep count. That's one. (laughs) He also tested for the L.A. Fire Department, but he struggled with the writing test and some of the physical stuff, so he was also denied there. He became very desperate to become a firefighter. Like, he wanted to be a hero. He was definitely already an arsonist at this point. (laughs) There was no... I'll get into that later. I'm ready. Oh, wow. You keep skipping ahead. Becky, stop. Spoilers. So then he applied to the Glendale Fire Department, and he was eventually accepted there in 1974. Now, Mm. at the time, the Glendale Fire Department was at the bottom of the L.A. County pay. So that's probably why Mm. he got hired, because they weren't... If he wanted to be a firefighter so bad, he could have just been a volunteer. Just saying. I don't know. Just saying. You have a point. You do have a point. (laughs) So he studied fire science at a local college right after he was accepted. And he also worked at a 7-Eleven and a Sears store doing security when he first started off. Mm -hmm. So at the Glendale Fire Department, he earned a carry permit. He applied to become an arson investigator and he eventually attained the rank of captain. Whoa. So now we're going to skip a little bit to when this first started happening. So it was in Glendale, California, which is said to be one of the safest neighborhoods in America. But Until he got there. Well, <laughs> actually, it also has a dark past because the hillside strangle, strangle oh, murders, yeah. which happened in 1970. Yeah. Right. So, right, but it's the safest count. Okay. Oh, yeah. That says a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does, actually. Yeah. And it's still considered one of the safest neighborhoods in America. But is it? I don't know. 
So on October 10th, 1984, a fire broke out around 7 p.m. at Ollie's, or Ollie's, sorry, Ollie's, which was a home center, like a hardware store, mm-hmm. in Pasadena, California. The blaze quickly engulfed the entire store, and the store was also like, it was a part of like a, like a shopping mall, like one mm-hmm. of those strip like mall. strip malls, yeah. 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 So the other stores evacuated. The fire department was called. It did claim the lives of four people. Two employees, a 26-year-old mother of two, Caroline Karras, and a 17-year-old store employee, Jimmy Santina. And then two other people, a 52-year-old grandmother, Ada Deal, and her two-year-old grandchild, Matthew Troidel. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, the Pasadena neighborhood was devastated, and arson investigators came to the con- came to the conclusion that it was an accident caused by faulty wiring or a problem with the electrical system. Everyone on the arson investigator team believed this, except for John Leonard. He believed it was deliberately set. And he got mad when others didn't believe that. (laughs) Which I have so many theories. (laughs) So later in the investigation, it was proved that John's opinion was right. And the fire was started in one of the areas of the store with highly flammable products, which they assumed was so it would cause the most damage. Mm -hmm. So, uh, at the time of the Oli's fire, no one was surprised that Orr's opinion was right. He had, he had become a hero to a lot of people. He had, people said that he had, like, a sixth sense for arson investigations. He could, he could, like, show up on the scene of a fire and pinpoint the exact location of where the fire was started. Oh, could he? I bet, you know what? (laughs) I bet he could. And then, in minutes, like, he, he would come up with these theories about what, like, how the fire was started, and if it was an accident, or if it was deliberately set, and most of the time, his theories were always proven correct. Oh. So his colleagues thought he was brilliant, and he was truly, like, a hero to a lot of people. See, it's hard to hear that, knowing that he at least set a fire, you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. we know he was an arsonist yeah. at some point, so hearing it, I'm just like, oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. No one at the time was charged for that fire, and it kind of was forgotten. So then in 1987 in Fresno, California, there was a conference for arson investigators. And during and after this conference in a nearby in a nearby town of Bakersfield, there were several suspicious fires that were ruled arson. Marvin Casey, the chief of Bakersfield's fire department, became very suspicious. They found a piece of a notebook paper, which was used to create a timing device, and there was actually a print on it, but at the time, they couldn't get a print off of it, and there was, like, no matches in any database Mm -hmm. that they looked through. 
And at this time, Casey did think that it could be one of the arson investigators at the conference, but he couldn't prove it. So then two years later in 1989 in Pacific Grove, another conference was being held for arson investigators. That's basically just an arsonist conference at this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and more suspicious fires oh happened. And he was at both? Around the time of these conferences. I'll get there. Don't worry. <laughs> so I am now Casey, the captain of the fire department in Bakersfield was very convinced that it was one of the firefighters at the conference. So he did compare the attendees from both of the conferences and he came up with a list of 10 possible suspects. So he continued on with this investigation, but it was taking a long time since there wasn't a lot of evidence that he had. And he did have 10 people that could be possible suspects and he still wasn't positive that it was one of them Mm. so then in 1990 and 1991 between this time in the LA metropolitan area more fires broke out so a new task force was assembled and they were nicknamed the pillow pyro task force and this was because the timing devices found at the fires were created using Cigarettes, matches, lined pieces of paper, and they were all placed inside pillows. Oh. Interesting. So, like, okay, hold on. A timing device. Is that so, like, time it that it goes off at a certain Mm -hmm. time? Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah. That makes sense. Where do people learn these things? Like, where? He studied fire science. Well, I know that's where he learned it, but other people. (laughs) Like, why? why? I, I don't know. I just get upset. So then in 1991, Tom Campuzano of the Los Angeles Task Force, he started also becoming suspicious. And he... It's time somebody was suspicious. <laughs> well, Marvin I'm, Casey has been suspicious this entire But he wasn't suspicious about... What's his name? Morgan. Move on, move on. <laughs> well, neither, neither was Tom. Um, Anyway, so he started, you know, looking into it more and asking people around it. So then Chief Casey heard that Campuzano was becoming suspicious and he contacted them. They compared notes and realized they were looking for the same arsonist. And that's when they both narrowed in on John Orr. He was at both conferences and they also found him very suspicious because of his very extensive knowledge on fire and arson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then they were able to match the fingerprint to John Orr, mm-hmm. but they still wanted more proof since it, you know, the paper could have come from anywhere and since John or was in the area, they wanted more proof. Yeah. So they put a tracking device on Orr's car. Ah. The first one he found and removed. So then they placed a second one on his car, and it showed him at another suspicious place where a fire happened. So then he was arrested on December 4th, 1991, and... 
After his arrest, police searched his home and found a 350-page unpublished novel about a firefighter who was also a serial arsonist. (laughs) Oh, so an autobiography. (laughs) Yeah. In his story, the arsonist set fires because it sexually aroused him. Oh, great. (laughs) And the fires in the book were eerily, eerily similar to the ones that happened in real life. Autobiography. <laughs> so the the Oli's home center fire, in the book, he wrote that there was a fire at a Pasadena hardware store, and two of the victims in the book were a woman and her grandson. In just, the book, this, this gets a, a I just little... don't get it. Why would you do that? That's so incriminating. Well, this gets worse. Oh, just wait. <laughs> she put her hand up at me. I would just like wait. you all to know. She paused so, me. So in the book, this grandmother was going to take her grandson out for mint chocolate chip ice cream after going to the hardware store. In real life, the only person who knew that information was the grandfather who was at the store at the time and barely escaped. And he's the only firefighter he spoke to and told that to was John Orr. So he's an idiot. How did he go this long without getting caught? He's documenting it. The problem is people don't look at firefighters as quickly Mm -hmm. as they should. But in reality, it's not that uncommon for firefighters to be arsonists. No. It's unfortunately very common. Mm -hmm. So And have a hero complex. Yeah. Like this guy did. Or always said, and to this day, claims that the book was a work of pure fiction and he based the arsonist off off of arsonists that he had arrested in real life. And he said any similarities were just coincidence. Right. You kind of just have to laugh at that. It's just, like, just creative writing. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, it... Sometimes there's no people denying it. just do the stupidest things. Like, I don't understand how you could be so smart about fire but then so stupid mm-hmm. like you knew exactly how to do this for how many years how long without getting caught you knew how to make a timing device you knew exactly what started a fire you knew exactly the right place to do it in right time but you're not smart enough to not document it mm-hmm. yeah i feel like or it's more of to a realize you're thing. being tracked for a second time and then still set a fire yeah yeah i mean obviously it's kind of a compulsion yeah but i'll just never understand how like they can be so like criminals can be so skilled at doing something so awful Mm -hmm. but then be so stupid be so stupid about it yeah i mean i'm glad they are because it gets caught (laughs) but i don't understand it Mm -hmm. yeah because i don't understand how they don't get caught sooner yeah yeah continue i'm ready so at this time the finding of this book wasn't put out to the public because they wanted to use it for courts so people people were really split a lot of people believe that he was innocent because he was an arson investigator for years he served as chief of the glendale fire department he was a mentor and trainer to a lot of newer firefighters and he he made training videos for the fire department so people were really distraught about it his two daughters believe that he was innocent 
And Lori, who at the time was 17, testified on his behalf at trial. Prosecutors and the jury did not believe him. No one, Good. No one believed yeah. him. Good. No one that mattered believed him. <laughs> no. So then you can't fault his daughter, though. I mean, you know, no. you can't look yeah, at your no. father and think he'd be capable of that if you knew him for so long mm-hmm. as something as a hero. Mm-hmm. But that's the problem. He had that superiority complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then in July 1992, he was convicted of three counts of arson. March of 1993, he pled guilty to three more counts in a plea bargain to reduce charges against him. And then in June of 1998, he was convicted of four counts of murder, and he was sentenced to life. He still says that he is innocent of the Oli's fire. He still claims to this day that he is innocent. No. (laughs) And Lori, at first, she believed that he was innocent, and she actually believed that for a long time. When she was 23, she testified again at his sentencing hearing to help him avoid the death penalty. But then in 2018, she did an interview with an arts and entertainment writer, and she said that she gradually realized the truth and Mm -hmm. remembered seeing matches, paper, and cigarettes in his briefcase, even though he didn't smoke. She also said that a relative, after he was arrested, once told her that or confessed to starting brush fires when he was younger. Called it. (laughs) Which isn't totally confirmed because I couldn't find that in a lot of places, so I'm not sure if that was an actual thing or if the relative was trying to convince her that Even if it wasn't true that that person caught him or he confessed, he definitely was doing things like that. Yeah, I I mean... I would assume. Yours is different than mine, where mine had no history of being an arsonist. He really was just an evil person who used fire as his weapon. Mm-hmm. Yours, you know, this guy, he's an arsonist, like, yeah. through and through. Yeah. yeah. So then she eventually did read his novel, which convinced her fully oh, that he I did I can't it. even imagine. And she wrote a book about her experience with having a loved one who she thought for years was a hero and then turned out to be a criminal. Mm-hmm. So... She wrote a book That's to hard. help other people who it probably are in helped the same herself situation. too. Mm-hmm. What about the other daughter, or is she just not really um, out there? Her name is Carrie. She's older. She never testified on his behalf, mm-hmm. but she was older, so she probably you know had a bit of an easier time mm-hmm. accepting yeah. the truth. Yeah, she just she didn't. She probably kind of wanted to remain neutral. Yeah, she didn't. I get it. Put herself in it like Lori did, Mm -hmm. but she Mm -hmm. still thought that he was innocent when it first happened. Yeah, I mean, how could you just go from you know looking up to your father as a hero and then being like, oh, he is a murderer and an arsonist (laughs) and Mm -hmm. awful and weird? Like, it's just not that quick of a Mm -hmm. a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's what Lori's book is all about. Mm -hmm. Like how. Because it is a process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's a good thing that she wrote that. I'm sure it helped her and it's probably helped other people since. Yeah. So that's good. Wow. So sorry that was so <laughs> heavy, Sarah. Yeah. Did, I'm assuming his like his book never got published. No, his okay. book was good. Never published. good. Yeah. It was called 
points of origin. Points of origin. Wow. Oh, because points Cause of origin fire. of the fire. Yeah. Oh. And I don't oh, believe. Oh, he's so clever. <laughs> I don't oh. believe it was ever published. I oh. really hope it was never published. Yeah. I mean, how That's, common is it? You know, prisoners oh. publish things from there all the time. Yeah. Which is weird. I don't think he did. He is still alive. He's 73 oh. years old. But he will remain in prison for the rest of his life. Good. Good. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was probably just like a pride thing. Like I feel like a lot of criminals, like unless they're like that was you know super intelligent. Yeah, it's like oh look at all this stuff I've done and no one knows I've been doing it. Like mm-hmm. I'm yeah. so smart. And he cool. probably, in a weird way, did want people to know. Yeah, especially if he did like if like he started that fire at that hardware store. He's the only one to say like yeah. Oh, someone did this. Like maybe he wanted mm-hmm. to be found out. Like yeah. I don't know. I just think he wanted to be. He just wanted attention. He wanted to be a hero. Like, yeah. yeah. And for a while, he was, which is mm-hmm. really, like, feels weird. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, the whole time you're reading it, because I knew he was an arsonist, you're telling me all his history, and it just makes everything he did so weird and tainted. Because mm-hmm. it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Well, that's pretty much all we have. Yeah, thank you guys for listening. Thank as you, always. Sarah, for joining yeah, us. Of course, thanks for having me. You were great. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Don't forget to follow us on our Instagram at behind underscore the crime and our Facebook page, which is just behind the crime. No underscore needed. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Facebook. So true. Tune in next month for our second episode that will come out over the summer. We're doing some pre-recording so we can still get some stuff out, but unfortunately, it'll only be once a month. Mm -hmm. We're just a little busy with finals. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little bit. Yeah, but you'll have two more episodes from us throughout the summer, and then we'll be back to our normal every other week schedule. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.